sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. We love it when you get involved, and that's an easy thing to do. We are the story guys at gmail.com. But if you've listened to the show for a long time, you've probably heard a couple of names come up on the show of people that whose voices you have not heard, and that is Leif and Troy. They're our two producers. And you, you know, you hear me, you hear Murdoch, you hear Phil Medley on occasion. But these two guys are in the background, and we get a lot of help from them because they're giving us ideas and resources and feedback and research and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and recently Leif had been working on this particular topic for us, and we thought it'd be really fun to have him come in with us because we kind of talked about this ep- episode a long time ago a bit. What's up, Leif? Welcome, buddy. What's going on, guys? So in conjunction with my very, very high-profile executive producing gig here um i'm i I prefer the term executive producer rather than producer that means you give us money executive producers just fund things so if you want to fund us that's fine executive producers don't really do a lot is what i've been told (laughs) so that's what I, i would like titles that don't do a lot but i have recently become a high school teacher i'm a shop teacher and i am a metals teacher and not Ted Theodore Logan, uh, San Dimas High <laughs> Metal. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, you don't, you don't teach the kids about like unit one is Judas Priest, unit two is Kiss. That, that's not how you do it? Man, no, so I teach cool. them about stainless steel and carbon metal and uh, aluminum. So it's nothing right. nearly as fun as that. All right, fair enough. But a couple of Mondays ago, I uh, had a student come in and he had a black eye. And uh, I didn't notice it till the end of the class. And he was walking Walking out, I said, hey, Mitchell, uh, you okay? How'd you get the black eye? And he said, "Uh, it's no big deal, Mr. Benson. I was dancing at this show at a bookstore in Evansville, and I got hit. And I I laughed, obviously, because I was like, those aren't the kind of bookstores that I go to where there's (laughs) uh, hardcore gigs going on. And But he said, yeah, he said they were just dancing and things got a little out of hand. And as he walked to the next class, the next group of students, they began to uh, come into my laboratory. And I began to thinking about those times whenever I would catch a stray elbow or a fist uh, at a show in the past. And so it just made me feel good knowing that kids are still moshing. Thinking the kids are all right. They're still beating each yes. other up to, kids, to hardcore music. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you said you were working on this topic and it got me thinking about my experiences with moshing. Now, people who know me, like you two gentlemen, know I'm I'm very thin. I've I've only been thinner. Like this is maybe the heaviest I've ever been in my life. And so <laughs> when I got into rock and roll, this was a very dangerous endeavor if I was going to be in the mosh pit. It's funny because you you mentioned this like weirdness about he's he's moshing at a bookstore. I was moshing at church gymnasiums, right? People know that I came up in, in the conservative Christian culture of the 90s, and so Christian rock was a thing. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that the first time I saw a full tilt mosh pit, and I, I don't remember exactly, but it was probably at what I consider my first full tilt rock show featuring a band it had a guy in it who was featured on MTV at the time. His name was Peter King, and he had a band called Dakota Motor Company. And I saw them in a church gymnasium in small town Indiana, and it was awesome. Must have been like 1995. Yeah, and so uh, my experience could not be completely more opposite than your experience. <laughs> so do you remember in 93 when Danzig released that EP that was called Thrall... <laughs> Demon Sweat Live. So he went on a tour to tour on that. And then the mother video where he's playing live, like that got heavy rotation on on MTV. And you know what I did? I, I 
I sent a, a letter, you know, whatever, to my girlfriend in Canada. Just kidding. The guy who I'd get bootleg, <laughs> bootleg cassettes from in Canada, and he had a, a dance, like some Danzig shows on the tour. And so I, I went and looked, and there was a non-album track. And, dude, this non-album track was awesome. And it's called When Death Has No Name. And, <laughs> and it's a non-album cut, but it had been on they, – they actually released it on the streaming services for a couple – like on a couple of different records, but it went away. So imagine I'm at a – I'm 19. I've never done anything like this, and I'm, I feel like I'm the only person in this club that knows the song. And there's like the bridge happens, and the bridge is where – I know I'm going to run directly into everybody <laughs> as hard as I can. So can you can you just can we just play that part? So um, I didn't understand that you're not supposed to just run directly in and just hit, like, run into the biggest person you could find. So I do that. Nothing happens except people turn around to look at me, and I realize I have angered everyone. And so I turn around and run as fast as I can. And I'm getting chased, and I had to run, and I went to the freaking bathroom, and I hid in a stall. Totally true. I've never told another human being that except James Cheatham, who went with me to that oh show. Oh my god, that is yeah. epic! Yeah, I did meet him after the show. He let like at, on the tour bus. You, you met dancing after the show? Yeah, there was someone right before me that had a "Use Your Illusion" T-shirt. Yeah, because oh I because they do. I guess they did. Did attitude was already out, and he goes, "I'm not showing a fucking shirt, man." Um, but he like shook my hand, and then these girls went on the bus right after that, and I was like, "Dancing's so cool." <laughs> so that was my that was the first time I did that, and I realized I do it wrong. And then I had to go. There is the an board. art to it. Remember when the guy in the motorized wheelchair started uh, started the mosh pit by like, going around and yeah. around? Yes. Dude, I totally forgot that this happened. Yeah. So yes, Leif and I saw Frank Turner. We're in the balcony, and we're like, and he is a very positive performer. He's one of the reasons I think Leif and I both really like him is he brings this energy of like we're here to lift each other up and to have a great time and all this sort of stuff and so at some point like i mean didn't he stop and thank everyone he's like this is the coolest thing i've ever seen that there's like a circle pit happening with a guy in a wheelchair yeah he did before he before the show even started he said number one if you want to have fun if you want to have fun don't be a dick i mean i think that's actually what he said was just don't be a dick right Right, right, right. So what you have been working on is is helping us unravel how this all starts. Why do people get the idea that when the breakdown happens in that Danzig non-album track, they're supposed to run into other people? Like, why does that exist? And what I discovered uh, was that uh, the beginnings of the mosh pit, you have to go all the way back to the mid-'70s, the UK punk rock scene. Okay, um, okay. The famous infamous sometimes member sometimes not member and everything in between bass player of the sex pistols was sid vicious and he started he started sid this whole ball of wax. vicious this starts with it makes sense that this crap starts with sid vicious because we talked about him when we talked about richie edwards recently on the show from the manics and they both fill this very unique role of provocateur like that's sort of their role in the band they barely play instruments they're there to to be sort of the attitude and the swagger. And so it would, it would make sense that that would be what he did. The thing about it is whenever I was growing up in the, in the 80s, 
the only Sid Vicious that I knew was the wrestler. And so it really confused me this is so cool. whenever I learned about the Sex Pistols and the fact that he died in 1979. I was very confused because, as we all know, information before the Internet was <laughs> right. spotty at best. Yeah, right. I'm so glad Leif is here and we're having this conversation. So there had to be this moment where it happened to you and I where we have this tape. And we are like looking at the liner notes, or we're or we, you know we're looking at the members, and then it's and the reason I know about Sid Vish is that, that he came into Mid South with Jerry Lawler, and Tojo Yamamoto was the person that trained him. So I saw him on TV before, like he like there, like on like the local Memphis thing. Dude, that guy was like seven foot tall, and he was totally absolutely crazy. So there was a time that I had that too because I I didn't understand the part that he had taken his name because it was confusing. Yeah. I, I learned that there was a wrestler named Sid Vicious uh, yesterday. So <laughs> thank you both for letting me know that. Uh, I, and this is why Leif is a, works so well as a producer on our show, because he can fill in some gaps that I have uh, in, in terms of relating to Murdoch back to the pistols, the, the Sid Vicious that I do know about. Uh, obviously they're a band that gets very big, very quickly and they burn out incredibly fast, but they inspire a lot of passion. There are a lot of people who really freaking love this band, even in real time when they're happening. As a band gets bigger, you know, they start going other places. So in September of 1990, uh, 1976, the Sex Pistols are doing a two-night residency at Club de Chalet du Lac. I hope I pronounced that right. That's in beautiful. Paris. We. Oui. There's a reporter from uh, the Melody Maker named Caroline Kuhn, and she's supposed to write about the show. But instead of writing about the quote-unquote Sex Pistols show, she starts writing about the fans and who these people are. And she comes up with a term. They travel from a London suburb all the way to Paris to see them. So she named them after a suburb, the Bromley Contingent. And Bromley, who else is from there? H.G. Wells. By the way, <laughs> of all the facts that Murdoch has stored in his head, the guy who wrote The Time Machine in War of the Worlds is from Bromley. Well, it's funny that you say that, though, because it, it makes sense that a literary hard hitter is from that place because we, we spent a lot of time on the show recently talking about taking these field trips where we looked at Long Beach and how it set up the music of Sublime. And we looked up at Sheffield and how it set up for the music of Def Leppard. Right. And Bromley had a place, a part to play in the formation of punk rock, but it's artsier yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. more affluent place than the cities that are around it right and, i mean it's probably high street like even if you do not know london or england you probably have heard of that place and it's really a shopping district it's a commercial place that still exists and so it feels like punk rock coming out of this place is, is reactive it's reactive to the affluence and it should be pointed out that not all not all the fans were actually from bromley and I know this is going to shock you. A lot of the punk rock fans were kind of pissed off about it. They didn't like the moniker. But the Bromley contingent is noteworthy uh, for a lot of reasons because they had a lot of people that started out as fans that actually became famous on their own. Uh, Not the least of which would be Susie Sue uh, and the Banshees and Billy Idol. How many episodes in a row will this be if we bring up Bill Grundy again? Is this the (laughs) third? At least two or three, yeah. The biggest moment and their most visible presence, uh, Sex Pistols, was on the Today Show 
not with not the American version, the Today Show with Bill Grundy. Yeah. So real quick, everybody, Bill Grundy was hosting this show. It's like a regional news show. It's very sleepy. You would have probably never heard of it unless the Sex Pistols um, got booked. Yeah, evidently they were not supposed to get booked. The producers originally had booked the band Queen. Amazing story. Which is hilarious to me. Also, like Just the idea of Queen being on this show is also funny. But Freddie Mercury needed emergency dental surgery. Like If we're plopping this into the Queen timeline, is this like when he gets his teeth fixed? That's what I'm thinking, right? Yeah, I mean, I maybe. I, I, we'll have to, I we'll have, think so. We'll have to look further into that. But he, they can't be there regardless. And so what happens is somebody's like, oh, I think we can bringing this band the Sex Pistols that I've been hearing something about. And guess what? Uh, their appearance did not go just like it was expected to. <laughs> no, <at all. laughs> no, it did not. So the Pistols, they appeared with some of the Bromley contingents sitting behind them on the stage on the t- television show. And Grundy started off the interview by saying, You see, they are as drunk as I am. They are clean by comparison. They are a group called the Sex Pistols. <laughs> which, which, by the way, everybody, if you're a connoisseur of this show, you love this show, and you can see this clip on YouTube, yeah, he's drunk, man. It's pretty, it's amazing that people could go on TV. So everything starts on the wrong foot because they start to mock him and curse him and kind of make fun well, of him. Well, the best part is that Grundy then decides to act like he's offended by their behavior, even though he sort of starts it. And then he follows that up by... Hitting on Susie Sue. What about you girls behind? Are you, uh, are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. That's what I thought you were doing. I always wanted to meet you. Did you really? We'll meet afterwards, shall we? You dirty son. You dirty old man. And that sets Steve Jones off, who begins to just berate Grundy as much as he can for the rest of the show. My favorite quote, you dirty fucker. So, (laughs) okay. So this incident destroys this show. He gets suspended within a couple months. The show's totally canceled. This isn't relevant or germane to this episode, but while I was doing research, I found this amazing quote. And then when, uh, when Grundy died back in 1993, one of his old producers said this about him. He was a difficult man to keep sober, but not to produce. And that's what I think of y'all. That's <laughs> such a great quote. So there's this timeline that we got to explain, though, since we're talking about Sid Vicious and, and uh, the Sex Pistols. A lot of people don't realize this, right? Sid Vicious not actually in the Sex Pistols for very long. So he's like in the Bromley contingent, and he's following them around, and he's a fan, and he's in the scene. He's part of the posse. But just like Richie Manick, who was a roadie first, Sid Vicious was a fan first. Sid Vicious thought of himself as very, very punk. Well, and this is why they want him. This is why they want him as a bass player, because the guy that they had as a bass player was not very punk. No, he was not punk at all. Supposedly, he was kicked out of the band because he liked Paul McCartney too much, (laughs) which is very anti-punk. That's true. That freaking Christmas song. And, And so... And so, and so vicious. He'd get pissy about people who would show up to Sex Pistols shows, and uh, he, he he didn't think they were in the punk lifestyle uh, as much. So he would start jumping up and down and side to side and try to bump into them and piss people off that he just saw were posers. And if you guys love rock and roll documentaries and haven't seen the Sex Pistols one, dude, you got to. It's the Filth and the Fury, and that's where Sid explains this. 
Yeah, I started it because I hated the Bromley contingent and I invented a dance that would involve being able to knock them all over the fucking 100 club. So I just used to throw myself about, leap up like horizontal and sideways, just like boing, 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 boing. Like land on them and smash them into the floor. So obviously pogo dancing is called pogo dancing because it looks like you're jumping up and down on a pogo stick, which real quick, I sort of didn't think pogo sticks were real things. And my nephew has one and he's been sending videos of himself on a pogo stick. When when did you realize that a pogo stick was a thing? Like in the last six months. Like, I mean, I thought it was a thing, but I didn't think it was like actively a thing people still had and used. Oh, yeah. I don't actively use it. I'm just saying I had one. Did, were you I never, aware? I never had one as a kid. Did you have one, Life? I never had one. We had them in gym class. Uh, really? In elementary school? Yes. No, nah, man. Pogo, pogo sticks, uh, jump ropes. The yeah, big I guarantee you, no elementary school currently has pogo sticks. I'm pretty sure lawyers have gotten rid of pogo sticks. Yeah. Anyway, so pogo sticks, the, the pogo dancing, pogo sticks. I got it. Yeah. This is how we get off subject, Leif. I'm so excited you're here. <laughs> So here's a quote from from Steven, who's the bass player of Susie Sue, Susie Sue and the bands he's talking about. Sid, quote, we first met him at one of the concerts. He began bouncing around the dance floor. Um, the so-called legend of the pogo dance. It was merely Sid jumping up and down, trying to see the band, leaping up and down because he was stuck in the back somewhere. Now, this End is quote. a slightly different version of what I we love, hear. I love that quote because it, it's, it's like Sid Vicious was... Uh, was this modern punk uh, Zykeus trying to get a, trying to get a view of Zachary. <laughs> you, you, you just somehow brought Zacchaeus from the Bible into this conversation? <laughs> yep. Wow. All right. Well, I'm, I'm signing off on that b- biblical reference for damn sure. Murdoch does not know who Zacchaeus is. Zacchaeus was a tax collector who went to go see Jesus, and he was so short that he couldn't see him teach. And so he climbed up in a tree. But here, here's the deal. <laughs> He climbed up in a tree, and then Jesus sees him, and oh, it says, hey, come down from that tree, and let's chat. Like, let's have a conversation. And it's a big deal, because Zacchaeus was, people didn't like him because he was a thief. He was a tax collector, but he was, he yeah. was taking money from people, and so people were ugly to him. And so what this story is supposed to illustrate is the kindness and the compassion and the empathy that Jesus had towards people who were outcasts, so right? Did, did Jesus give him lifts? In the shoes, yeah, he got so people didn't think he was such a you know. Yeah, no, I don't think I. The Bible does not say if he helped him with his height issue. If he just like magically helped him grow, I don't think that's what happened. But the reason kids of a certain age, adults of a certain age, probably not kids of a certain age, adults of a certain age who grew up in a certain subculture know the story of Zacchaeus is less about reading the story and more about a song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, <laughs> and a wee little man was he. Oh he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Uh, it's a whole thing, man. Wow. So I, I just, I want you to know. I got it. You're, you're t- <laughs> I got it. There's a little bitty. Little he bitty, said, little I got it. Little bit, Stop. Little bitty tax collector. So anyway, Sid Vicious, Zacchaeus, similar, <laughs> similar vibe. That's what. This has never happened in the history of the internet. No one has ever compared Sid Vicious to Zacchaeus. No, we have ever. made history, the ladies internet and gentlemen. Bookmark God, Leif, What are you doing this to this show? What are you doing to this show? All right, so I, I do think it's worth pointing out that this is a different story to a certain degree because Steve is saying that Sid was jumping around because he couldn't see. Sid is saying he was jumping around to piss people off. Is it a little bit of both? Probably. 
But I do think it's worth pointing out that those stories are slightly different. Now, there's an excellent video in the show notes of podcast favorite Debbie Harry. Shouts, we got to see her not very long ago. High five, Murdoch. Yo, that happened. Boom. That uh, happened. Explaining, she's explaining in this clip to a television show audience how to do the pogo dance. Pogo is actually, it's a historic dance already. And uh, I just heard from my friend Alan, who just came over on the boat, that it's out. It's over. So, just as a historic reference, the pogo has has been done like this. This is how how it started with this thing. So, being tall and lanky... It, this is sort of dancing that I understand. This is like, you know, we said moshing was hard for me, but I'm totally down with pogoing. This was like more my style when I was in middle school and high school. And she makes it seem kind of fun. But the way Sid Vicious explains it, he, he makes it feel nefarious or dangerous. But the thing that strikes me about pogo dancing and later moshing is how much it has in common uh, with the Pentecostal churchgoers and speaking you're, in You're doing church again? We just did Zacchaeus. Yeah, I'm like I'm like a hosier. I'm taking taking everybody to church. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so I this is interesting. Give me give me your spin on on why you would say that pogo dancing and moshing is similar to church at a Pentecostal congregation. Because it's it's just like a fever that just sort of breaks out in this place, and it's just sort of it, it just sort of compels you to do it. Now, one time I was in Mexico on a on a mission trip. And obviously, I speak English, and I speak a, a, a little bit of Spanish. And so we were in this worship service, and all of a sudden, people are jumping up, and they start speaking. And it's really weird if you hear someone speaking in tongues, and it's just in you're just in a place where people speak English. But when there's two different languages being spoken, and ne- you can can't understand either of them. Then it's a little bit it's it's a little bit crazy. Now me, I never I never did it. I, I I never felt like I was sort of swept up in the wave, the hysteria. But it, it just made me very uncomfortable. So Murdoch, I I know again as we've already pointed out, we had different upbringings. You've probably not been around speaking in tongues. I want to know what your experience or thought is on this idea. You guys, I mean, you're you're familiar not, with it, right? You're just not judgmental people, right? Yeah, no, no, no. Tell me, thing. tell me. So yes, no, none of all of this is weird, and so I'd see this as a kid on PBS where I would see like the speaking in tongues and handling like snakes, snakes yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's or whatever. a very famous and, documentary. My first day in cultural anthropology, my freshman year of college, we watched this documentary. And it was kind of, for me, it was kind of like the cheetah lives in its native. Like yeah, yeah, I'm watching yeah. this wacky thing. And I'm like wacky Christians. Cause I don't, I didn't understand yeah, no, any no. of it at all. And I was like, so is, are there just sects of, of Christianity where, they hold snakes, and they they think that these yes. things aren't actually going to kill them. But because, it's it's because, not super common because yeah, the snakes bite. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, that's about faith, yeah. right? That's about faith. But uh, here's here's my about personal faith. experience with this, right? So, like, I grew up. We talk about my church upbringing on the show a lot, and I grew up. I'll be very clear. It was. If you know this lingo, it was uh, Reformation movement era, not a nominational Christian church, right? So it's you don't hate, you're not, it's not Methodist, it's not Baptist, it is literally just we would say Christian, and you there's a you know you're heavy on the New Testament. There's like a lot of stuff to it, but there is not snake handling or speaking in tongues. That does not happen. It's it's pretty vanilla and it's pretty chill. And but I moved across the country when I was in high school, and I now had this quandary which was i got to find new friends 
and I got to find friends my parents will approve of so I don't have to be because I'm a teenager. I don't want to be at the house all the time, right? Like in a town where I don't know anybody. So I make friends with this guy named Seth, like in my first couple days of school. And he looks pretty cool. He seems like he's got his stuff together and he says something about having a youth group or something. I'm like, okay, maybe this is a guy I can just like sort of like, I, I couldn't tell in the ecosystem of the high school if this guy was cool or not, right? But he seemed all right. So I'm spending some time with him and he starts inviting me to these chill, what I think are going to be chill uh, gatherings. And long story short, I get pulled into this Pentecostal ring, man. I'm making it, making it sound like it was like a drug ring or a sex trafficking ring. It wasn't. It was just people who would get together and occasionally all of a sudden things would get wild and there would be speaking in tons and such. So that was like my Pentecostal autumn. Like I was around that for a lot and uh, I learned some stuff about it and it was not for me, but it was a very interesting thing to watch as you're saying this wave sweep over a room full of people. And so I can kind of follow you on how this connects to we're watching this rock band, we're overcome with it, and now our bodies are jerking around. Yeah, and I mean, obviously the believers and the believers would say that they're being swept along with the spirit of, uh, of God, and but that's just sort of the way mosh pits happen. I mean, if you think about mosh pit or pogoing or anything like that, I mean, people, people are just sitting there enjoying a show, and then all of a sudden their bodies just start moving and then just hitting each other. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that doesn't make sense on the outside, but it just sort of happens. We've actually been getting some letters from people who are like, can we have a long deep dive on the connections between the church and rock and roll? Maybe. I feel like we're qualified to do that. That's not today, though. We'll save that for another day. And Leif, thanks, by the way, because there's no way I would ever get to pogoing, Pentecostal, <laughs> dancing. Nope. Never would have got there until like two minutes ago. Ever in my life. Oh. And, and you, you totally got me. So... Back to the actual pogo dancing. So this starts in the punk scene, but it becomes more associated with New Wave, really. I learned in the research that there were quite a few dance clubs that threw, uh, that thought that pogo dancing, which sounds innocuous, was way too dangerous. And bouncers, uh, you know, we've all, we've all seen a, a bouncer with an attitude. They started throwing club goers out of, out of uh, their clubs because they would be pogoing. Oh, my God. So this leads us to an amazing story. This story is bonkers. So we're going on a side quest here real quickly. Is that okay with everybody? Sure. Let's go. Okay, so pogoing, getting you kicked out of a club. We've got to talk about this kid named Ivan. There was this kid named Ivan, and he hears the Sex Pistols in the 70s, and he gets sort of into it. And he starts a punk band, and it doesn't work out. And so a couple years go on, and he starts to make music with his brothers. They're listening to Gary Newman a lot. And he's like, Let's try to play this new wave thing. So him and his brother start this band and they name themselves after the fact that people give them a hard time all the time because they really are fashion forward and they think hats look stupid. So they do not wear head coverings in public, even though they are in Canada and it's cold. So people call them the men without hats. And, and one night one of them is at Ivan is at a club and he watches a guy get kicked out for pogo dancing and he thinks that that's just a travesty. And so he decides he wants to write a protest song about people getting kicked out of clubs for pogo dancing. And this will be the biggest hit he and his brothers ever have. And this is how the pro- protest song goes. We can dance if we want to. We can leave your friends behind because your friends don't dance. And if they don't dance, well, you know, they're no friends of mine. That's the safety dance by Men Without Hats. 
while doing research for this, I obviously I watched the video. Mm-hmm. The video is perfect eighties bonkerness. Oh yes, you know the seriousness and earnest of new wave now in twenty twenty three is so comical to me. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, like many things in pop culture. Pogo starts off in one place and it spreads and mutates somewhere else. And punk rock itself does the same thing. That's true. And here's the chicken and the egg. And here's my chicken and egg thing. The Ramones go to the UK and they play their first show over there at the Roundhouse in 76. And in that crowd were members of the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Damned and Chrissy Hyde. Right. Yep. So, yep, yep. so imagine what type of seeds were planted right there. So from there, eventually, punk spreads from the UK to America. In the late seventies, early eighties, you start seeing this prominent punk scene coming from Southern California, and this is where you see Black Flag coming from. And, and this scene develops. Pogo dancing starts and gets more aggressive from here, and and slowly turns into what people will call what slam dancing. Slam dancing, which is what. I think I called when I was like 18 or 19. That's what I called it. Too. That's what you were trying to do at dancing. Yeah. I was, okay, I gotcha. was just trying to run into a person. I didn't understand. I was supposed to do it. And I didn't know I was supposed to pick up change. Eventually I figured that out. You run around. You, you <laughs> we pick, haven't talked about that. Pick, picking pick, up change. You're picking up change. You walk around and just put, you're picking up change. Anyway. So they start dedicating certain places at, at the show in which the dancing should happen. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the pit. That's the pit. And that's where slam dancing starts is in pits. And we are getting so close to moshing, but we're not quite there yet. So it's going to take some jazz musicians in Washington, D.C. to finally get us to the mosh pit. That band is called The Bad Brains. And we have to go back to my girlfriend from Canada again. So <laughs> this gets us there. Let me get let me get you my girlfriend from Canada and we'll get back to The Bad Brains. So... I, I, Living Color's first LP came out, so I got a Living Color bootleg. It was from uh-huh. CBGB's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is like, I thought it was so super cool. And the best song that was on there, 100%, absolutely, was Sailing On. And then I yep. go looking for it, and I realize it's not even the freaking song. It's a bad brain song. But they were all over the place. They actually were a jazz fusion band, and it was called Mind Power. This jazz band one day is hanging out with a friend, and the friend is like, yo, have you heard punk rock? If you're punk rock and he shows them punk rock and they're like, maybe we should be a punk band instead. That's what happens. They actually rename themselves after Ramon song, you know, who's in the same scene in New York. It's a uh, bad brain. And that's from 78's road to ruin. If anybody's keeping up. But then the guys get a chance to go see Bob Marley in concert. <laughs> and now all of a sudden they have a competing interest and fascination with Rastafarianism. And they are combining all of this, this jazz fusion, this Rasta effect, and punk rock, and they get all of these, and it concocts this crazy high-energy performances. And there's a Bad Brains documentary that's a live thing, if you can catch that or watch the thing on YouTube, and it is unbelievable because you get to see how they destroy clubs and how people look like they're getting really hurt at CBGB's and the ringleader is this guy who I had a big affection for once I learned more about him it's the man most associated with the band who had a, ended up having a lot of uh, psychological problems and stuff and I wanted to give him a big hug uh, I saw him one time at uh, CBGB's when I was when I was actually at CBGB's and I could tell you know no one's going to talk to him like everyone yeah, leaves yeah, him yeah. alone and I thought Maybe it's because everyone's scared of him. But yeah. Anyway, that's HR. That's definitely that's definitely what was happening. Quick aside. So you've actually been to CGBB. How 
how terrible were the bathrooms? Did you go in the bathrooms and actually see it? Yeah, absolutely. So you could you could really just walk. Um, like here's the stage, and you would go like stage right. So you would just walk up and go to your left, and just walk to the bathroom. Like you could just walk acro- like kind of across the stage into the bathroom, and there's like no stalls. Like it's just and and no cleaning of anything. It was super gross. Can I tell my super awesome CBGB stories? Has nothing to do with this. Yeah. Amazing. I saw Sugar, of course. I saw Sugar Ray there in like '94, <laughs> and it was before it was before Sugar Ray happened. Right, right, right. And and uh, and it was the record that has Nicole Eggert on it, where yeah, she's yeah. on all fours, and they've got the feather the feather boa around her. And Mean Machine was the single, and they got finished with it. They're like, "Thank you, we're Sugar Ray." all sluts backstage and all these women just walked up on stage and I was like, are they going to the bathroom? Cause this place is gross. <laughs> so gross, dude. That place is so gross. But what an amazing, like the sound, the sound in that place was magnificent. It's terrific. <laughs> You're, your Sugar Ray stories are pretty legendary. <laughs> back- <laughs> I know, I've got a couple of them. But, but back, okay, let's, let's get back uh, to HR. So a Village Voice uh, review of a Bad Brains concert once described HR as like James Brown gone berserk with a hyperkinetic repertoire of spins, dives, backflips, back flips, splits, and skanks. Well, and they have a song called Band in DC, and guess what it's about? It's about being banned in D.C. because their fans were so destructive in every venue they played in. Yeah, and H.R. was this super intense guy. It's like he's the, the ringleader of the band, and he would try to get the fans to slam dance into each other and really kind of get them riled up and, and mash. He wanted them right? to mash right? together. Yeah, He but, wanted them to mash together, but he liked to use a very, very fake Jamaican accent. <laughs> So when he yelled mash, it came out as mosh. And I'm not going to do the fake Jamaican accent. I can't believe this is how how moshing became moshing. I cannot believe this is true. Fake Jamaican accent is how moshing came about. Everybody mosh, man. Mosh together. That is ridiculous. You're not going to do that fake accent, and I just repeated what Mark McGrath said. Like, the most <laughs> offensive thing I could say. I live with, like, three independent women who would all slap me in the face for saying that. I'm just repeating what that moron said. Anyway, we need to s- talk about moshing on TV. Because oh, yeah. a lot of people don't know who didn't know in middle America or anywhere in America what this is. Like if you live in the your flyover state, like this is nowhere, man. If you're like Los, if you're not in Los Angeles or New York or in the UK, it's it's nowhere. I mean, but to Blake's earlier point, the internet, life without the internet, right? You didn't you didn't get this information just streamlined to you via a, a tweet, right? So how do you find out? And one of the places you find out about a lot of culture in the seventies and eighties is one of your favorite places. Yeah, so it's SNL. And I was just thinking about this the other day about how this is the craziest possible episode. So a lot of people uh, across America accidentally find out what moshing is because of that episode, and because of a band that's also from California in that scene with. Black Flag, and that is fear. Yeah, 
And we get to talk about um, the decline of Western civilization documentary, but not the second one with, with Chris, Chris Holmes I, I know. from the Wasp. Second one's, the second one's the one you like, right? right? Right, So there's two. So we've talked about them on the show before. There's these two documentaries by Penelope Spheris, who tries to document what's happening in rock music. And so the second one becomes about hair metal. But the first one is, is a lot about punk rock and things that are happening uh, in California. Yeah, and the second one... It didn't age as well because uh, Wasp is in it. I don't know, man. Like, you know, it's just different, you know. Uh, okay. So people find out about fear partly through this doc because she finds these guys from fear and starts following them around. That's how a lot of people get introduced to that band through that documentary. And by at least some accounts, uh, the doc is how John Belushi finds out about the band fear. He develops a obsession with, with working with them for some reason. Yeah. So, you know, this is the thing I didn't know. He actually does a song with them. Story goes, he's making this movie called Neighbors, not to be confused with the Nick Stoller film several decades later. The, the terrible movie Neighbors, unfortunately. Uh, oh, man, that movie's yes. great. You guys don't like Neighbors? No. no. Oh. Leif, yeah, not a great movie. No. The movie's great. No. The movie's great. No. I stand by it. So he's doing this movie Neighbors, and he he is so into fear that he's like, I got to show the world fear. I'll put them in my movie, but he can't get them in the script or whatever. So he's like, record a song that we'll put over the end credits, and then everybody will be like, oh my God, what's that song? And they'll find out it's you. Well, the guys in fear are like sort of down with this, but they don't really want to be the vocal. They don't want to do the vocals because it's not really like, I think he helps. I don't know if he helps write it or what, but they're like not crazy about the song. So they're like, John, you can sing the song. So he does. There is a. It's him and the lead singer together singing this song. So Belushi takes it into the studios, like the studio executives who are making neighbors, and is like, "Here's the song for the end credits." And they listen to it and go, "Hell no! There is no way we are putting that anywhere near this movie." Yeah, and and this is how I I feel, Leif. I don't know about you, but you know, when something like that fails, you know, John Belushi thought that he owed the band something. So he promised to get them on as the musical guest on Saturday Night Live, which, by the way, was a terrible idea. The yes, it was a terrible idea for a multitude of reasons. Number one, Belushi was no longer on the show. Amazing. So he promised something that <laughs> yeah. he, could not, he could not pull out. Yeah. So but he does pull show. it off. He just makes a phone yes. call. That's how much they love that yeah. guy. But so he calls a head writer and says that he will come do a guest cameo if they will bring on Fear as a musical guest. But he is smart to know that for anyone to understand the power of going to see that band is that you just don't leave people in those old New York Yankee seats in that studio, man. That's not how that works. So he wanted it to be authentic. And that means you need a real audience which is why Leif really brought us here today. So he literally buses up fans of the band 
to come into the studio, and that was definitely not probably run by, I guess, anyone. I can't imagine that anyone signed off on that. So I heard that he actually starts the bus in D.C., and for some reason, like he's, it's supposed to be 30 people and they, they stop somewhere on the way and pick up like another 30. So he signed off on like 30 and there's like 60 people when they, when they walk into the studio and fear plays beef bologna and New York's all right. If you like saxophones and in front of them in that legendary musical spot, people are losing their shit. So suddenly, frenzied mosh pits are are not in the dark, sweaty clubs anymore. They are front and center on TVs across America at 12.05 a.m. And things go bonkers. Like, no one's seen this, like, on TV before. And it's the Halloween episode, so a, a pumpkin gets thrown at Dick Ebersole. And to be quite honest, as a fan of, of Saturday Night Live, they should have thrown eight at that guy's head. <laughs> A fear fan gets gets a mic. A fear fan gets a mic and yells curse words, and that's the best part, really. And the network cuts away during the music performance, which has only happened one other time, and that was with Ashley Simpson. And they cut away to a pre-recorded uh, Eddie Murphy skit. <laughs> yeah, and so headlines uh, afterwards they described it as a riot. Uh, the New York Post claimed that that one of the show staff was just glad to be alive. <laughs> following the event and it's classic new york post journalism in, oh my gosh i i wish i could tell you how much i love the new york post it's like <laughs> i whenever i lived up in the northeast this is when actually there were newspapers and i would get breakfast then i would read my new york times for the real stuff and, and the, then read the new york post just to get that sugary high would you read the cindy adams uh pay the thing where the society oh, page of all the world everybody was partying oh yeah i would look at the front page then immediately go to page six. Now, whenever I was living up in New England, uh, was uh, when J Lo and Puff Daddy were having a lot of problems. Yeah. So I read. Yeah. You talk about mid two thousands, P Diddy and J Lo. I am. Oh. I'm practically a historian. Back to Fear and SNL. So um, one of the show staff said, "I've been in the business for years, and I've never seen anything like this." was a life-threatening situation, and it's amazing that no one was killed. I love when people say things, and then someone says something completely different. So here's a quote from a Saturday Night Live spokesperson that says, The damage wasn't all that bad. Nobody was hurt. Nothing was smashed, the rep told uh, Bill, Billboard. And there was no smoking ruin. But fear does officially get the awesome thing that uh, Ashley Simpson, Rage Against the Machine, replacements, I can't think of anybody else. They got banned. Elvis Costello. And Elvis Costello and ABBA? Yeah. They all yes. got banned? Do we need to do an episode on bands that have been banned from SNL? I think we named them all. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. You, you get a bonus right, right here. Uh, and at this point, this is sort of how moshing becomes mainstream. This is how late years later, you will try to mosh to Danzig. I will try to mosh to Dakota Motor Company. Leif will try to mosh to... Uh, Somebody at probably a Christian music festival in the middle of Illinois. That's correct. Is that where it happened? That's correct. Let's get all the way back to my student, Mitchell, okay, who came in with the black eye. Later that week, um, it was on a Friday afternoon, I got an email from Mitchell, and and he said, hey, uh, I just wanted to tell you that I've been accepted to a charter school, and I won't be in class anymore. And he told me how much he enjoyed my class and how I was one of his favorite teachers so far this semester. And so I emailed him back and I said, hey, I was, I'm excited for your new opportunity. Uh, it's a great school. I know you'll do well. And I told him to watch out for some elbows in the mosh pit. 
<laughs> I know. Which is great. Bravo, awesome. bravo. That was uh, that was yeah. just absolutely excellent. Uh, thank you, Leif. If you want to get involved in the show, we are the story guys at gmail.com is an easy way to get questions, stories, things you're concerned about uh, to us. We love it when you do that. Uh, we also love it when you support the show. Patreon.com is an easy way to do that. Five or ten bucks a month gets you bonus content from us, early releases, etc., etc. And uh, it helps us perpetuate the show and find more fans, etc., etc. So we can continue to do this uh, for you. And uh, until next time, should we let Leif do this? Yeah, Leif, you get to do it. Okay, so you say it and Leif gets to do it. All right, Leif. Until next time, keep telling stories. This episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories was written and executive produced by Leif Benson. It was edited and produced by Brian Eichenberger. Book the guys for your show or house party at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com and support the show at patreon.com slash rockandrollbedtimestories. The show is property of Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.